It's wildy. You know, I remember when my kids were younger, they would kind of like poke me if I'm talking to somebody, mommy, mommy. And if I don't pay them attention, they just keep poking at me, right? They just keep poking. The moment I turn around and say, yes, how can I help you? The poking stops. This is the same thing with, with the sadness and, and, and the anxiety that we're experiencing. Know that the moment you stop to ask what's going on, you are given a voice to the pain. And so knowing that this is a moment of suffering, I can actually begin now to move to the next part of self-compassion is that, that this is a humanity issue. Welcome to the Wild D Podcast, where our primary goal is to keep you informed and to be your central point of contact for what's happening around us. And anytime we get a chance, we like to give you something to think about. So if you're new to the show, we cover a wide range of topics from society to sobriety, from the culture to the vultures. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. In today's episode, we catch up with Jasmine Baptiste, a passionate marriage and family therapist. She specializes in trauma, PTSD, and has a wealth of knowledge in various areas. We discuss cycles, wheels of dysfunction, and some of the systemic issues that therapy can help with. It's a lot of great stuff, so please buckle up. And if you haven't already, please click the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners just like you. So thank you for your support, your feedback, and your ratings. Now let's get into it. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm excited. It's another day. It's a beautiful day. It's actually about 81 degrees with a high of 84 in my area. And I'm really excited because a lot of you all uh, wouldn't see some of the things that go on behind the scenes. And I've been working really hard on getting this one in particular guest that I've been noticing has been doing a lot of moves over the past couple of years. And so much so that it's taken almost two years just to get this guest. So I'm really excited to be here today and to talk to Miss Jasmine Baptiste. How are you doing, ma'am? Hello, I'm doing so good. How about you? I'm awesome. I'm awesome. I, I think it's uh, a lot of work that went into uh, getting you here, or at least just the uh, calendar syncing and the stars aligning. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, hopefully uh, we get to uh, bring a great one home and have a, a great conversation overall. I really wanted to give you an opportunity to let everybody know a little bit about you, what you do, what's your day to day. And um what type of services you provide, because I think that that's important as we go down that direction of the conversation. And who is Mrs. Jasmine <laughs> Baptiste? Yeah, definitely. Well, I am actually uh, a native of the island of Dominica, but I've been living in Nashville for about 32 years now. And um, since then, I got a bachelor's degree in psychology at Tennessee State, went on to Trevecca. Nazarene and got my master's in marriage and family therapy. And I'm currently working on a master's in divinity from Luther Rice College and Seminary. And um, just to say a little bit about what I do, I, you know, am a licensed marriage and family therapist, uh, trauma informed, I would like to say, because that's what I'm passionate about is just making sure that people are being heard. And so I provide services for individuals, for couples, for families. Uh, it doesn't matter what they're experiencing, but we definitely want to make sure that they receive what they need. Uh, for the past seven and a half years, I worked at the Sexual Assault Center here in Nashville and um, also worked at End Slavery Tennessee for women who were being trafficked and also worked at Tennessee um, Prison 
uh, for women, just helping women who may have dealt with all types of uh, maybe um, drug abuse, prostitution, and helping them work through their own trauma. So that's just a little bit about me. And uh, my whole goal and desire is to really empower survivors, empower people as they go through their journey of soul transformation. That is awesome. And I think that that's needed. Obviously, I think that uh, there's been more light brought to some of these conversations over the past few years. I think that for, for some individuals, my, me included, there was a point in time where you would see that maybe somebody was suffering or going through something, but you wouldn't know exactly what it is. And mm-hmm. in our community growing up, we would just label that person as like, number one, somebody you stay away from or two, crazy, or they got a lot of issues. They got a lot going on. So yeah. if you don't mind, I'd like to just really kick it off with asking you just some questions based off of that. Right. So you said marriage and family therapist. Right. And then divinity. Like, like mm-hmm. how did those two worlds kind of collide and like, how did that come about? Yeah, well, I think for me, the divinity piece, you know, theology and um, uh, real, being religious has been a part of my life as long as I know myself. And uh, the therapy piece actually came in uh, when I was working at a place called uh, Hope Clinic for Women. And I began to see uh, people coming in and there were therapists there that were actually helping them work through some of the things that they had gone through. So my interest was piqued at that moment. Uh, As I began going through the program, I began to realize that there was a need in the church to be able to have conversations around mental health. Um, I looked at families and I began to notice how, you know, whether it was parents were responding to children, husbands were responding to wives. And uh, I thought to myself, this would be a very good opportunity to bring the two together, to not make it a stigma, as you talked about earlier, that there is something wrong with me, that I don't have enough faith, that God doesn't love me, or I can't get help from someone else if I consider myself to be a Christian or religious And my whole idea was to bring those two together and help people work through the difficulties that they may be facing that is oftentimes hidden, right? We don't want to talk about those things because for some reason it makes us feel weak, especially in our community. Um, As you talked about earlier, you know, that, that stigma of you must be crazy. I remember, you know, telling someone that I was going to see a therapist and they, they said to me, are you, um, you're not crazy. That's for crazy people. So it was a great opportunity um, to really educate that individual uh, of what that means, because I think we need to recognize that we all have emotions, right? We are body, soul, and spirit. And if we have emotions and we feel it in our bodies, then we need to be able to know how to deal with it and help our children and those we come in contact with create that atmosphere of being able to work through the difficulties that we face. No, that's good. I like that. I actually have a lot of questions around that, but maybe um, depending on the type of question, you may end up charging me. So I'll mm-hmm. hold it and then we'll, we'll keep it towards the end. And if you do end up charging me or you need to charge me, then that's not going to be for everybody else. So uh, one of the things that you you called out was just like marriage and family. Mm-hmm. And if you could like 
add some more color to that? Like, what does that entail? Like, if 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 you were to offer your services around therapy for marriage and family, like, who would that audience be? Yeah. So, um, in terms of marriage, and I do see individuals. So, it could be an individual in the family system, right? That is needing some type of support and they would come to me to be able to work through that. What we often find is that when an individual comes to therapy, we often see them as the identified patient. Like you are the one with the issue, you go to therapy. Um, But it's oftentimes a systemic issue right? Because how one person responds affects the next person in the family. And we have this vicious cycle. So we can talk about that uh, a little later. But when we think about marriages, it could be simple as a couple that wants to know how to communicate. And they find themselves having much difficulty. And that is oftentimes because one person grew up in a household where there was a lot of friction, and there was a lot of yelling. And the next person grew up in a household where Uh, they numbed their feelings. And so now these two people are coming together and this one person is yelling, the next person is shutting down. This is a trauma response. And we'll talk about trauma in a little bit, but it's a trauma response. And so they're not coming together. They cannot work together. It's difficult. So we begin to work on ways to help the couple communicate. And then you look at infidelity. Um, You look at other family issues that may arise in terms of finances. So I help them just be able to work, know how to work together, collaborate together, um, and be able to see each other. Sometimes when we are facing difficulties in the marriage or the family, we're looking at the other person. But it's one thing to be able to look at myself and see that where am I falling short? What do I need to shift? Um, How am I projecting unto the next person? So those are the things that we work on in the marriage. Uh, When it comes to the family, uh, it could be, let's say I would have a daughter that comes in for therapy because the parent is saying that she's um, always angry and always, you know, talking back and those type of things. Or she's not doing her schoolwork. I want to be able to talk to the parents, especially if there's a, you know, the caregiver of the house. I want to be able to understand what is the dynamic in that relationship right? How do you respond to this, this child, this young, this, uh, this teenager? And how is this teenager responding to you? What is, what is going on? And so this is where the wheel happens. So what the cycle is, maybe uh, the daughter, you know, is trying to do her schoolwork and mom says to her, you better get it done or else, right? And so she, she gets her work done, but she doesn't get all right. And the mom is a perfectionist. And she says to her, you need to get all A's. And now the daughter begins to feel like I cannot live up to that. So the only way that I can deal with this perfectionist that mom is trying to uh, create in me, I am going to rebel. I'm going to just not do my work, right? Or I'm going to talk back. And, uh, and then mom begins to get angry at her and she now begins to isolate. So you see the cycle of how that happens. And so this is not just the daughter's uh, situation that's going on or issue. It's also mom and how we can work together to see how we can break that cycle of dysfunction in the family so that we can communicate better. I love it. And at least the way that it was communicated to me has been more specifically working on the individual. Mm -hmm. What you what you're saying is. 
it, it can also be beneficial or it is beneficial to work on it together, right? So if it's a marriage, not just one person coming to you, yeah, I mean, that's fine, but you would want the couple. Yeah. If it's a family, and let's just say it's a parent having a problem with a child, you want the parent and the child in the conversation. But I want to understand, like, what is too big of a family? Like, what is too big of a group? Or is that even a thing? Like, you're like, hey, the more the merrier. Yeah. So, you know, this is a, um, oftentimes you start off with one person and you definitely, if that person comes in, that is your client. If it starts up with just the individual, this is your client. Now, as we begin to work through some things, I begin to recognize, oh, okay, so I can see how this is affecting the entire family. So what we can do is I need a release, you know, consent to be able to reach out to the next family member that you would love to bring into the session so that we can begin to, uh, so it may not be, it could be one or two people, it could be one person at a time, but um, we definitely want to create that space where that person can feel safe to talk about it because I think oftentimes they're not able to talk about it at home or they don't have the verbiage, right? And maybe that person at home doesn't know how to respond. And so bringing them into that room, we can role play together, right? I can also help one person say to the other, well, this is how you respond to me. I'm going to act it out, how I sense your presence. So what that does, it, it mirrors, it helps you to begin to see what's really happening. And when you feel like you're in a safe space with someone who you can trust and who's really listening, it really tends to open people up to, um, to talking about the things that they normally are not able to talk about. So it is definitely a systemic issue. Um, it is oftentimes transgenerational. I love to ask people, whose anxiety are you carrying? Whose depression is it? Because oftentimes we're carrying other people's stuff. I need, I need you to break that down and, and not being as specific to where you're talking about somebody in particular, but mm -hmm. it, give me an example of, of how that shows up. Like you, me carrying somebody's depression or somebody's anxiety. Yes. I actually have a, a clearer thought. What I'm thinking about is typically people end up acting out mm -hmm. when they're trying to take on other people's burdens from the standpoint of, let's just say you have a family member that's going through something and you're the first person that they call, right? So now you're mm -hmm. taking on their pressure and you don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what I here, but I could be totally off base because I didn't study this thing. I'm not certified. So tell me, like, give me an example of what it looks like to take on somebody else's problems or anxiety and depression. Right. Definitely. So I'm going to uh, use the, the exact example that you just gave. Right. So someone calls you and they they unload all of their burdens on you. And now all of a sudden you find yourself anxious. You can't focus. You're distracted at work. Um, and that's because you're trying to figure things out for them. So our nervous systems get connected. And all of a sudden, I'm beginning to feel what they feel. And not knowing what to do with that, we begin to uh, please people, right? We begin to see, how can I ease their anxiety? How can I ease your pain? So I begin to do things that I normally would not do 
or say things I normally wouldn't say or go places for you I normally wouldn't go because I'm trying to make you feel better, even if it's not serving me. Um, on a deeper level, you think about transgenerational trauma, and this is something that uh, is newer to me, but I have seen great results with clients in terms of, I will ask the question, because sometimes you can sense that what I'm carrying is just not mine. If, you, if we stop just long enough to ask the question, is this really mine? And so I often ask this question, and, and more often I will hear people say, you know, this really doesn't feel like mine. And so I ask them to just kind of like notice that in your body, where you're sensing this anxiety, where you're sensing this, this collapse, this depression, and, and notice if something comes to mind for you. And I will oftentimes, you know, I remember a story about my grandfather, you know, and what he used to say to me and um, something happened and he felt so guilty about it that he just wanted to um, give me something to make me feel better. So he oftentimes would just buy me things, right? To make me feel better because he felt guilty about what I experienced. And so he was always sad and I didn't want him to feel sad. So I would receive the stuff. It's almost like I'm taking in, I don't want you to feel sad. So I'm just going to please you and I'm gonna take in whatever you give to me. And so I'm carrying my grandfather's stuff. And what I need to go back and work through whatever it is that we experienced as a family with my grandfather, what was that thing that my grandfather was so sad about that he did not know how to deal with it. And so he was projecting unto me. That's what we often do. We project unto other people, our pain, our sorrow. And once I was able to, for example, a particular client, once I was able to help him to just begin to notice what it's about your grandfather that you've been carrying or holding on to. He was able to once again, just say, wow, this really isn't mine. He was in a suffering position and I wanted to help, but I was too young to help. I didn't know how to help. And so I just allowed him to just pour out all this stuff on me and I took it. And now I feel like I'm carrying that. I don't want to carry that anymore. So we create this space where he can literally give that back to his grandfather, provide maybe a support in his mind for his grandfather that he needed at that time. So, you know, it's interesting how the brain works. It's malleable, right? There's neuroplasticity in the brain. And so we can change things through just visualizing and giving the body an opportunity to just release and deactivate the stress uh, response that we have in our bodies. Okay. So does it manifest through the body based off what you're saying? Okay. So at least for me, mm -hmm. I feel like I never really looked at it as I feel better about anxiety or mental health, depression mm -hmm. when I work out, but that's just because I was always working out. I didn't realize that. Um, yeah. But I noticed that there was a key moment in my life where things became too busy and the one part that was missing was working out is that's when I felt it in the body. Yeah. Right. So while I still remain the same level of busy, however, I put working out at the forefront of everything, things change. And I don't know if there is a correlation there based off of what you're saying, or that's just my own personal observation of what's happening on the inside of me. Yes. So there is definitely a correlation and uh, there is a type of therapy. It's evidence-based. It's called EMDR, 
eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And what it does, it helps to reprocess, you know, traumatic memories. And so the creator of EMDR, how, what she found is that how this came about is that every time she was stressed, she would go out walking. And after walking, she would realize that she was feeling better. And so that piqued her interest. And what they came to find out is that as you're walking, there is movement happening with your eyes. So your eyes are moving from one side to the other. So the left brain and the right brain, right? Our logical side of our brain and the emotional side of our brain, there is something that is happening that is reprocessing things. So that makes perfect sense why you would feel better even after exercising too. And you are also releasing things from the body that's been stored there. So what about, I heard you say one thing about like giving it back, right? So if you're mm -hmm. holding someone else's mm -hmm. depression or anxiety, whatever the case may be, there's an element of, of giving it back to them. Like, and it sounded like after you give it back, there needs to be boundaries set to make sure that they don't try to throw it back at you. Like you're not playing like hot potato with this anxiety or depression. Mm -hmm. um, are there any type of strategies that you've seen like, hey, like this is like one of the most effective strategies for giving it back or let's just say that person's dead and gone or that person's mm -hmm. moved on. Like how, how do you say that somebody should deal with releasing that? Yeah. And it's so it's um, it may sound complicated, but especially you think about um, in transgenerational where the family member might be dead. When I talk about giving back is it's more in terms of um, I'm also providing support for them that they needed in that moment. So for example, if I were to say, you know, my grandmother, um, that anxiety that she was carrying, I want to release that. I might say, or the therapist might say, um, well, what would you have provided? What do you think your grandmother would have needed in that time? What is the support that she would have needed? Right. And so I'm thinking, oh, she loved music and she loved to dance. So it's almost like, I'm not just kind of like casting, you know, a burden upon them, but I'm creating something for her so that she can actually work through. So that's the compassionate piece. I'm not trying to hurt someone else when I say I'm giving it back, but it's more so I want to create a space where you can also be healed. If it's someone that is alive, uh, when we talk about giving it back, it's practically just meaning that I am going to release the tension in my body of whatever I'm holding for you. Uh, you talked about boundary, and that is so crucial and so important. So it's learning how to communicate our truth. For example, when we talked about the family, you know, I'm a family therapist, and we look at the family system. Um, when when you are on this wheel of dysfunction, where everybody in the family is anxious and uh, and sad and depressed, and you're like, I don't want to be that anymore. What we often do is that's the person that often seeks help. And this person is going to jump off the wheel of dysfunction in the family. And what happens is that the family decides, I want to get you back on the wheel because you're making me feel uncomfortable, right? There is a gap now because you're not, the wheel is not running smoothly, even though it's dysfunctional. So you have families, the wheel is running really smooth, but it's in a dysfunctional way. And so I have gotten off the wheel and there is a gap. And the family member is going to try everything they can to get you back on that wheel of dysfunction. So they begin to make you feel uncomfortable. You know, you think you're better than us. Um, we've done so much for you. That guilt, that manipulation shows up. 
Um, and so being able to continue the journey of healing is very important. So what we want to do is surround ourselves with people who are like-minded in terms of wanting to go through the healing process. So I may have a therapist, I may have a mentor, but being able to verbalize what is it that I need. And sometimes journaling can be the best thing because it helps you to process what is it that I need to be able to continue on this journey. It seems like there are strategies and processes to get rid of it or to overcome it, right? Okay. But can you actually ever get rid and be free of it? So we talked about giving it back, yeah. getting it off of you. We talked about exercising um, or just going out for walks. But it, to me, and I'm talking about me personally, mm -hmm. I almost see it like I'm a remote person. So I stay at home, I don't move around much, but I try to make every effort to to exercise but i remember those days before the pandemic where i would go really hard in the gym let's say six months vacation time come up and then you know i would try to work out on vacation but when i come back i didn't have a goal or anything to to go for and what i would realize is i'm like well you know i'm already in shape now so now my body's just our it, they were it remembered that all the work i had to go through this is how i look this is how i look for the rest of my life and then next thing you know, I'm like, OK, I got to get back in the gym. I've been slipping. It seems like it's a daily practice just as well. It's like always working out and you have to continue to to work at it or maintain that healthy image, whether it's mind, body, mm -hmm. soul, spirit, wherever you go. And that's my guess based off of just the exercise type of analogy that I just used. Would you say that that's the same thing? Yeah. So maybe if I. Uh define the trauma a little bit that might be a little helpful um because there's so many different types of trauma right we have systemic trauma transgenerational trauma social trauma um medical trauma and so forth but trauma is something that is deeply disturbing a deeply disturbing event you know that really shifts the way a person thinks and they have difficulty in controlling their everyday life in terms of how they go through life. And what I love to, to say when I talk to, um, to young people, because I think that helps them understand it better, is that trauma is something that is overwhelming. So it causes a disruption in our emotional functioning. Uh, I like to do the big O so they get it. So this is something that doesn't happen in our normal daily life, right? Um, so think about it in terms of we have big T traumas and then we have small T traumas. When we think about trauma, we oftentimes are thinking about war, uh, terrorism, uh, natural disasters, uh, sexual assault. Those are some of the things that really pop out when we think about trauma. And yes, these are definitely life-threatening and um, they can be very pervasive and invasive. And so um, as much as we want to pay attention to that, because these are some, those are the ones that will oftentimes lead to PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, after a month of having those symptoms. Uh, but there is also something called small T trauma. And we oftentimes overlook those. And it could be something as simple as interpersonal um, difficulties or problems in the family. It could be divorce, infidelity, uh, uh, an abrupt move from one location to another financial worries, all these are small T traumas. However, if we don't pay attention to the small T traumas, 
and they begin to add up, then we have big T traumas, right? So they add up to something really huge. And that's what you're talking about, not paying attention to what's happening on a daily basis, right? Not being aware of, of, of what's going on internally, not paying attention will cause those things to begin to activate. And then our nervous system has difficulty to process what is happening. And that's where the difficulty comes in. So um, I'll let you go ahead and then we can talk about how the nervous system responds to that. No, that's what I want to talk about. I feel like uh, <laughs> I think that's the next part of the conversation, really. I would say typically when I have when I'm facing a lot of decisions, mm-hmm. there's a space where it's like I don't move. Right. Like mm. I'm stuck. Yeah. And I'm like instead of going left or right. I stay in the middle. If I, instead of going forward or back, I stay right there. And, and that's where I look at it almost like, um, the nervous system is being impacted because I'm just stuck in this like lost zone where everything around me is moving, but I'm just right there in that space. So like, if you could just go ahead and dig into that. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like this is like this negative feedback loop, right? So what happens is that our, our brain helps us from since we're very young. The brain is what's helped us to kind of like regulate in terms of when do I eat, or when do I sleep, and all these things. When something happens that throws us off balance, something like a terror moment, just take for example a baby. The baby's screaming and crying and just yelling and, and shaking and doing all these things, and there's no parent there. But all of a sudden, the parent comes in and they begin to hold this baby. So now the baby feels comforted because we were created for connection. And so what the baby has learned is that, oh, there was a rupture, mommy wasn't there for me, but now all of a sudden she's back. And so there is repair, rupture and repair. If the baby continues to do that and there is no parent around, and that's, uh, we will call that complex trauma. So that describes when children are exposed to multiple traumatic events. And it's invasive, right? And you know, it continues whether it's neglect or sexual abuse that happens for a long period of time. But just to back up a little bit, just thinking about if the baby is crying and screaming and no one comes to their rescue, now the baby goes into collapse mode, shutdown mode. It's like, okay, no one's there for me. I have learned over and over again that no one is gonna be there for me. And so the brain is uh, predictive. It begins to believe that this is the way things are. And we begin subconsciously to develop negative cognitions about situations, about ourselves. For example, it could be, I'm not good enough for mom to take care of me, or I'm a bad person. So whenever we experience a traumatic event, we begin to develop negative cognitions, but it all depends on certain circumstances in terms of our upbringing, um, and so forth. So you can have two people who went through the same difficulty. They walked into uh, a store and a gunman held up the store and one person leaves and say, oh yeah, I fought him back and got, you know, and everything was fine. He's a loser. And the next person is frozen and they start having nightmares. Um, they start having flashbacks. So two different responses to the same trauma. So our values, our morals, and those are the things that help to uh, the support system. If someone is supported a lot, you will find that they will not, they will often not go into post-traumatic stress because they have the support that they need to be able to deal with the situation. 
So as parents, you know, this is a shout out to parents to definitely think about how we can repair the rupture that has been made, you know, if you have young children. So what the nervous system does, it begins to learn patterns. So when we think about our autonomic nervous system, we have our parasympathetic nervous system and our sympathetic nervous system. Our sympathetic nervous system is the fight and flight response. And so it gets activated. For example, if a car is coming and you're outside and you see the car coming towards you, you're gonna wanna take flight. You're gonna wanna run, right? You're not gonna wanna try to fight the car because you know it's coming too strong. So the fight and flight gets activated. And that's a good thing. We want that to happen. But what often happens is that this, if it's a, a traumatic event that happens and we're constantly in this fight and flight and we don't get any resolution to that, either the person shuts down or they're constantly throughout their life trying to figure out how do I fight through this? And we'll talk about how the trauma response occurs in our adult life. And then you have the sympathetic nervous system. This is the rest and digest. So this is the part of us that you know, take, for example, you're breathing in. When you breathe in, you breathe in. It's the sympathetic nervous system that's activated. When you breathe out, your parasympathetic, the rest and digest. So that's why breath work is very, very important. It's helping you to calm down. So it's, it's emotional regulation that happens with our sympathetic nervous, our parasympathetic nervous system. And so what happens, though, is that just imagine for a second that you are constantly hitting your brakes over and over and over again all day long, right? This is going to send a shockwave to your system. And that's exactly what happens when we don't get the resolution, the, the complete, the response that we need to in our lives. We don't get to repair the situation. Mommy doesn't repair. There's a rupture, no repair. And so the child grows up thinking, oh, this is the way that I respond to life. I either shut down. We find that happens a lot with uh, sexual assault um, survivors. They try to fight back, they try to run and it didn't work. So the brain shuts down, the brain says, you know what, the best thing for your survival is for you to freeze. And I would love for people to just to begin to think about our trauma response in terms of the fight, flight, freeze and fawn response. This is what happens as we get older as well. So the fight response in adulthood might be anger outburst, it might be controlling, the bully, right? Explosive behaviors. All this person is trying to do is to work out what happened back then. And then you have the flight response. This person is a workaholic. They try every, every, you know, they find every reason to work longer hours. They're overthinkers. You have the anxiety, the panic, the OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder that's coming up. Perfectionism also in there because they're trying to find a way to, to get out of their body what has been stored there for so long. And then you have the freeze response where people have difficulty making decisions. That's where you feel stuck. That's where there's this dissociation. I'm here but I'm checked out or I isolate because that makes me feel safer um, oftentimes people find that if I isolate then I don't have to deal with the anxiety I don't have to deal with the stress so those are the responses that happen and we have to learn how to navigate to help our nervous system to know that I can be safe in my body because what we're trying to do oftentimes is how do I think my way out of the anxiety? How do I think my way out of it? If we could have done that, everybody, no one would have anxiety by now, but we have to feel our way out of it. We cannot heal what we cannot feel. 
Hey, okay. So what you just said right there, I see why you got the divinity piece. I, I, I felt I felt I felt it towards the end. That's a great connection. No, no, no. But I like that because it, it is very uh, strong and well received, too. Um, there's a lot of people out there, at least I believe it's my thought is there's a lot of people out there right now that uh, that there's some thoughts around seeking help. Right. Uh, they don't want people to know. Um they don't see it as a sign of strength, they see it as a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. And I think that in order to get up the strength, in order to seek help, that there needs to be some level of work done individually first, right? And maybe the first step is calling somebody, but also like getting to the point where they feel confident in calling somebody or reaching out and scheduling an appointment to talk to somebody about it. Mm-hmm. What what advice would you give to that individual? Yeah, you know, it's not an easy thing, especially if you grew up in uh, a society where uh, getting help seemed like something was wrong with you. And so when you have someone that's already fighting against their own negative cognitions that they tell themselves about who they are, it becomes even harder. But I I just really want to encourage anyone that is seeking and needing help in this moment to know that you are not alone. And I think that's the piece right there that we often think that I am the only one that is going through this situation. And so um, if you would allow me to just talk a little bit about what compassion looks like. So there, there's a lot of study that has been done on self-compassion. And there is a book by Christine Neff, Dr. Christine Neff, and she, she really breaks it down on what compassion looks like. And until we can begin to have compassion for ourselves and also for our younger parts, so, because when we experience trauma at a young age, there is a, there is a separation that happens with self and our authentic self oftentimes gets, get, gets crushed, but it's there. And so thinking about compassion, having self-compassion is the first piece is to begin to recognize that this is a moment of suffering, that I am suffering, that this really hurts. We don't have to ignore that we're hurting. We don't have to ignore that we're in pain. So for example, the mere fact that I can feel that I'm anxious or I can feel that I'm sad, sad wants a voice. It's there for a reason. So acknowledging that is, you know, I remember when my kids were younger, they would kind of like poke me if I'm talking to somebody, mommy, mommy. And if I don't pay them attention, they just keep poking at me, right? They just keep poking. The moment I turn around and say, yes, how can I help you? The poking stops. This is the same thing with with the sadness and, and, and the anxiety that we're experiencing, know that the moment you stop to ask what's going on, you are given a voice to the pain. And so knowing that this is a moment of suffering, I can actually begin now to move to the next part of self-compassion is that, that this is a humanity issue. I may not know anybody else who's going through this right now, but I know that somebody in the world somewhere that we all experience pain, we all experience hurt, and somebody somewhere is going through something that I'm experiencing. It may not be the same thing. So here's the first component, that this is a moment of suffering. The second component is that, and show kindness to yourself, the second component component is that this is a humanity issue. And then the third component is mindfulness. How do I now begin to show myself some sense of kindness? Uh, It could mean that I begin to softly, 
you know, just kind of like uh, be with myself, give myself a nice little gentle hug, a rocking. Some people might recognize that rocking helps them, moving helps them, orient into your space, just looking outside in nature helps them. So what is it that I need to help me to feel this sense of calm and reassurance that I may not be the safest that I can be right now, but I can get through this and I can reach out for help. So once we know that this is a humanity issue, then I don't feel so isolated and alone that I can reach out. And there are many therapists and, and, and counselors out there who are trauma-informed. And when I say trauma-informed, I mean that this is a paradigm shift in our thinking in terms of understanding the pervasive nature and um, of, of trauma and how to provide the care that is needed to foster the healing that people need. Because sometimes if we go to the wrong person, um, or we share with the wrong person, what happens is that we end up being re-traumatized. So to tell my story over and over and over again, without tapping into my body for healing, then I'm going to re-traumatize myself. Like telling the story, I ruminated over and over and over again. But we just got to start having self-compassion for ourselves. And that will lead us to getting the help that we need. Because then I begin to realize that I am worth it that I have things to offer the world, that I can get the help that I need so that I can be my best self. No, I think that's awesome and, and really good call out, right? Reaching out to somebody because there are a lot of people out there that, um, well, therapists out there that are trauma-informed, but I'm not having conversations with, with them. I'm having it with you right now. So mm -hmm. if we had to, well, number one, thank you very much for all of that information. If we had to put a bow on this conversation, I want to number one, give you an opportunity to get your message out there, right? So what what I would say is like right now we're around this uh, seasonal thing where ads are in because there's a big game coming up pretty soon, right? And if you had the ability to take out an ad for that big game, and it's pretty much like commercial, and get mm -hmm. a one message out there, what would that message be? My message would be that there is hope and that we all can heal and healing happens from the inside out. I love it. I love it. Okay. So Jasmine, if you could do me a favor and then let everybody know how they can get in contact with you. Yes, definitely. So I can be reached. The easiest way is on psychologytoday.com. If you go on psychologytoday.com and you put in um, my name, Jasmine Baptist, or you can put um, Nashville, therapist in Nashville. I should pop up like very at the very top or somewhere in the middle. Also, I can be reached by uh, emailing jasmine at lifewelltherapy.com. That's jasmine at lifewelltherapy.com. I can also be reached at 615-952-0177. Now you see somebody that's serious. They put their number out there. All right. Well, Jasmine, I do appreciate it. I know that you're a very busy person, so I want to let you get back into your day. But thanks for stopping by. And it's a call to action for everybody that, to her point, there is hope. Uh, I think step one is finding out uh, what your central point is. But then reach out to Jasmine. She's available at psychologytoday.com. Thanks again. See you next time. Thank you. I appreciate it. 
Big thanks to Jasmine for joining us today. To learn more about Jasmine and everything that she's up to, we linked all her information in the show notes. We value good conversations and relationships, and this is one that we will truly cherish. Why not reach out to Jasmine and tell her that you enjoyed the episode? And while you're at it, please share the podcast with your friends and family, friends of family, and family of friends, because there's not too many things better than a community developing together. And remember, your life only gets better when you do. Work on yourself first, and the rest will follow. Let that be a testament to your own development. See you next time.